All right. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Nahum chapter 2, please. Chapter 2 is the description of the doom or judgment of Nineveh. Um, it's describing the actual battle of God's judgment over Assyria. This is not just mere prophecy. We have prophecy all over, and it is prophecy, but it's the battle that's taking place in the very details of the destruction, of the battle, of the uh, response and the fear of the individuals, as we'll see, and the outcome of a total extinction of the Assyrian culture and nation um, after this point. With very few years, it just lingered on some things, but it was, you've never heard of an Assyrian. Um, if you did, you could throw your Bible away. God says it many times through the three little chapters that they would be over. They would not exist any longer. And um, such is the case, as you know, in the book of Exodus, God said that Egypt would never be a world empire either. It's a nation, but it's never been a world empire. I've been to Egypt many, many times. It is dirt poor. And now it's under such um, uh, violent Muslim control that we don't even go there. And it's poor as dirt. And the Bible speaks about it. So the Bible is not just um, some wise fable, some stories that somebody put together. It is God's word. And so it pays heed to um, accept it as such. Peter tells us that the prophets revealed the mind and the will of God by the spirit of God, not by their own abilities. Let me read you that verse in 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now that's a bad translation. It should be of no uh, private impulse or origin. And as I read the rest of it, it'll reveal exactly that's what it means. Notice. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the prophets didn't just say, you know, I think I'll just prophesy today. You know, none of us got on my nerves lately. I think I'll just say some bad things about it. No. The Spirit of God came upon these prophets and gave them the message, yet with their own personality, their own vocabulary, in a way that the plenty of verbal inspiration guarantees that it is God speaking through them. Every word. Not their own impulse, not their own origin, not their feelings, not their opinions, but God's revelation. So if you're going to be biblical, if you are going to say that you have biblical faith, your faith must always point you back to the word of God. In its context, not subjectively, not out of context, not stacking of the scriptures, the full counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation. It's just that simple. Anything less is fraud. It's a misuse of the Bible. And so, let me give you the three divisions that 
are given to us in three chapters. In chapter 1, we saw the proclamation of the destruction of Nineveh. In other words, it was going to happen. In the destruction of the um, a description of the destruction of Nineveh while it's happening in chapter 2, that we'll see. And then the vindication of the destruction of Nineveh uh, that it had happened um, in chapter 3. So, let's begin here chapter 2. The first seven verses, we have the present destruction of Nineveh, though it was still in the future. We get the actual battle and the events. If God could get bored, he surely would would be the most bored person because nothing surprises him, nothing's new, he can't learn. What he says has already happened, and he sees it at the same time. We can't even think in those measures. And, of course, when we are thinking about God and the things of God, since we can't understand certain things, we bring God down to our level and says, well, it can't be true because I don't understand it. And so we use human logic and reason to bypass divine revelation. Now, sometimes the prophets of old understood exactly what they were saying, who they were speaking to, Peter tells us, but at other times they had no idea. Sometimes they knew it was for their generation. Sometimes they didn't know who it was for or just for future generations. But what's important is that they were instruments of the revelation and it was recorded. Because it wasn't just for them, it was for the following generations as God was putting his word together. And so, verse 1 and 2, we have the call to Nineveh um, to prepare for war. He says, He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort. Watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. And so in verse 1 here, God reveals the um, nameless conqueror, uh, their foe. He who scatters has become has come up before your face. This is the invading armies of Chiaxeres, of the Medes, Nabopolassar of Babylon. This is the Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar. And with the Scythians, a nomadic group that were vicious north towards the south of Russia and that. And these guys also were bad dudes. They would uh, get their captors, decapitate them, boil their skulls and skin them and use their skulls as drinking goblets. Now, if you've read the New Testament, Colossians, Ephesians, Paul says there's no difference between male or female, Gentile, Jew, Scythian, barbarian. We all qualify for salvation. <laughs> That's the incredible grace of God. It's important as you put and you look at the whole uh, scriptures and you see the, the type of people that God saves. You don't have to look any further. Just look to yourself. Now, that should be good appreciation for you and for myself. That God would save me. That God would die for me. What incredible love. And so Nahum, in mockery, calls the Assyrians to make all preparations against their enemy, but to no avail. It's not going to help them. And he does this through these five basic things. To position the fighting men, man the fort. 
to commission their reconnaissance groups, their scouts, watch the roads, to reinforce the rear, perhaps the supply and the intelligence within the city, strengthen your flanks and the bulk to bulk up their defenses, fortify your power mightily. God is saying through Nahum, get ready to fight a fight and the fight of your life that you're going to lose. The writing was on the wall. Once again, God in his justice is not quick to judge, but he gave sufficient time from the time that Jonah had come to the city to the time of the fulfillment was about 150 years. Nahum is prophesying 650, 660, somewhere in there if you want to go 40, but it's 40, 50 years before the actual fulfillment. Plenty of time for people to repent, to flee, to do whatever. So God never brings judgment without sufficient warning. You stop and think about the uh, warning that God has given that he's coming to judge the world. It's been 2,000 years. Every generation has heard it. And yet, God is still coming. Every generation has had the opportunity to flee from the wrath to come, to repent of their sins, to call upon God. Some have accepted, some have rejected. Some will stand before the Lord as his bride, and others will be, stand before the Lord for judgment. It's all based on the decision of each individual in every generation. Do you believe the word of God to be the word of God? Or do you believe it's just something that's religious and something that men put together and something that cannot fully be trusted? On that basis of your opinion and decision will determine your eternal state after death by the person of Jesus Christ. Nobody else. So mockingly here, Nahum, it's irony. Verse 2, the sovereign purpose of God. Notice God would uh, restore the nation of Israel. The covenant God, Yahweh, would restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. But not right away. This would be after the Babylonian captivity, around 536 B.C., when um, Cyrus would give the decree. It's uh, recorded for us in Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23, and you also have it in the book of Ezra and others, as he gave the command and the permission to go back. And again, God is the one who calls Cyrus. He even uh, spoke about how by name in Isaiah 44 and 45, and how Babylon would be overcome um, by the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus by name. His anointed 150 years before his birth. Wow. The way they would get in under the levee gates. Deflecting the Euphrates River. Not firing a shot while Bashar is having a drunken feast. Because he's so confident they cannot breach the incredible city of Babylon. Wow. Even though God had used Assyria to chasten his people. Notice he says, the emptiers have emptied them, meaning Israel, and emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. He's identifying Assyria. God is going to judge Assyria 
even though he used her as the rod of his anger in Isaiah 10, 5. They've already taken the northern kingdom in 722. Now it's about, like I said, 640, 650, 660, somewhere in there. It will take place in 612. And then they themselves would go into captivity. But it would be from 612 to 606, only six years, that Judah would begin to go into captivity under Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, in the first siege. Then 586 and 5, 596 and 586, the last one. And for 70 years, they would be in captivity in Babylon. But even as that, Jeremiah sent a message to Babylon to declare the destruction of Babylon through the Medo-Persian Empire before it was even a world empire. And once the proclamation was declared, he was to cast that rock and that message into Euphrates River. He says, so will Babylon go down. Wow. <laughs> That's the God that we serve. So God uses nations to judge nations. God vindicates himself of his holiness, his righteousness. He makes no mistake in judgment. And no one ever gets a short change case with the Lord. Nobody gets the short end of the stick. Verse 3 and 4, the armies invade the city of Nineveh. This is the actual battle again. In verse 3, the shields of the mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Now remember, this is the account of the actual battle. He's describing it very vividly. Even we'll see the response of the men. And it's almost like the second psalm. It says, why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? He will laugh at them. He'll have them in derision. And he's talking about the second coming as the nations are prepared to make war against God. And Psalm 2 finishes, kiss the Son of God, lest he be angry with you. So in other words, don't kiss your idols. Don't be devoted to your idols. Devote yourself to the one that's coming. There's a preview of the second coming, Psalm 2. You go to Revelation 19, you have the actual battle. A little preview. Because God can see it before it happens because he lives in the eternal present, right? So there's no big deal. This is the same thing here. Notice there in verse um, 3, the description of the shields of the mighty men said to be red. Some um, believe they are uh, polished brass and the reflection of the sun, um, even though we are going to be told about the red color that they're wearing. The multitude of infantry men, it would be a sea of red. Impressive, intimidating. I mean, when you see, you know, people say that there's somebody outside your door, some people that don't like you, and you go out and look out there, and there's three or four, that's one thing. But when you look out there and you see three, four, five hundred, and they're all wearing the same color t-shirt, 
red. It, 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 it makes a different impression. Warfare, the number one thing is psychological. To bring fear, intimidation, doubt into the enemy. So that when you strike, you have the upper hand. The valiant men are in scarlet, it says, in three. A color of a unified army ready for battle. Once again, the phrases complement each other. The multitude, the unification, the commitment. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, it says. In other words, God has prepared this day. Even as much as Jesus told the Jews, if you would have known, as he wept over Jew, if you would have known this, thy day, the things that are prepared for you, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he pronounced judgment over Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, Titus would come in and level the city, burn the temple. And the nation of Israel was dispersed. Few remained. Most were killed and taken to Slavery until 135 when the last blow came when they salted the nation of Israel, left a very small contingent of Jews, and they insulted those who remained and changed the name of the land from Israel to Palestinia. That's where you get the whole make-believe history of the, uh, of the Palestinians. Because the nation was changed to insult the Jews under their greatest enemy, the Philistines. The Romans did that, insulted the land as an insult. They were tired of the Jews. Anybody prior to 1955 that lived in that, by the way, there was no borders anywhere in there before that. Anybody living before 1955 that ever made mention of Palestinian, it was the Jews who were left there as an insult. There's not a Palestinian flag, not until Jasser Arafat came and all the make-believe history of the Palestine, of, of Palestinians. There's no such thing. And so it was an insult. And so here again, God prepared this day. His vindication. God is not mean. God is not unfair. God is not unjust. He is absolutely holy. A jealous God in chapter 1. One who doesn't need information from you and I. One who makes perfect judgments. One who doesn't even need to think. He just is. So much for our trying to understand the mind of God. Notice in three still in the spears are brandished. In other words, they're made to quiver or shake, to intimidate. Again, psychological warfare, the stomping of things and making the Maoris there in, in, down in New Zealand. They make all these faces and they're all tagged down, you know, before they go to war to intimidate. There are enemies, right? African tribes do the same thing. 
Nothing changes. And the spears, again, quivering. The chariot rages in the street. There in verse 4. They jostle one another in the Broadway. Some have tried to identify this as a prophecy for the automotive age. It's a little bit out of context and far-fetched, but that's what happens when you don't teach the Bible verse by verse and in context, and you just teach it subjectively, and there's many people that do this on the radio and in churches. And so they come up with some incredible interpretations to the Scripture that are so wild, especially when it comes to prophecy. Rather than comparing Scripture to Scripture, they just kind of just ad-lib it, you know what I mean? Do it from the newspaper or from the current events, what's going on. It's always not good. The reference to jostling one another simply refers to the chariots skirmishing around in the battle that God is describing here. As you know, those chariots, they were driven by two to three horses, uh, two to three men under the driver, two archers or one archer. And um, the Egyptian chariots were a little lighter and uh, the um, Assyrian uh, chariots were a little heavier. If you were with us this morning, I gave you some information on that. Um, and they had sickles coming out of their hub of the wheels. They'd go next to another chariot and tear it apart. Uh, the Assyrians uh, were well advanced. But in spite of their armory, in spite of their um, better chariots, if you will, they would lose because God was against them. You see, whenever a nation thinks that they've got it all together and that they have their weapons and they have their technology and they have their men, God just laughs. What did, he, what did I just say in Psalm 2? He will laugh and have them in derision. God doesn't care what you have or how good you think you are or how you've got everything wired. He can mess you up in one thousand of a second. Right now. He's neither intimidated nor impressed by us at all. Nahum mentions the broad roads here of Nineveh. Ashurbanipal's grandfather Sennacherib was the one who improved the streets of Nineveh in the uh, Bellino cylinder. He boasts, let me read it, quote, I, Sennacherib, widened its Nineveh squares, made bright the avenues and streets, and caused them to shine like the day. These very broad roads now that had been made for the uh, Luxury of the people, because it was very wealthy from all the booty and all the plunder they took from all their nations. We're going to make mention of that. God declares it. And they could afford luxury and, you know, wide streets and building, all this stuff. But it turned against them because now the chariots, when they came into the city, they had a wide roads to go through it for their own destruction. Amazing. They seem like torches, it says in four. They run like lightning. It refers to their speed. And someone says, boy, he ran fast as lightning. That doesn't mean he's lightning. It just means that he's fast. <laughs> Verse five through seven. 
the realization of their defeat comes now. He says, he remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are open, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breast. The realization of defeat is something horrible when you're used to winning. We see this all the time when it comes to professional sports. When the team just can't be beaten, all of a sudden they are beat. And then they cry like little girls. The arrogant pride of man. You see it in boxing. You see it in the MMA and all this. You know that, you know that, oh, I'm going to be for, there's always young lions coming up. Everybody has their day. You can't stay up on your feet forever. Trust me. But the arrogance of man believes so. Look at verse 5. The desperation of the Assyrians at the wall of defense. This is what's going on here. This is the battle going on. All this stuff. The chariots are going around. They've already breached the walls. They come through the gates. The battle is inside the city. He remembers his nobles. This could refer to the commanding general making the urgent call to mobilize his officers to this position of the wall that he's going to describe here. They're trying to reinforce there. They stumble in their walk, in their hurrying that they respond. All of us have been in a place where we have to move fast or some kind of emergency and you may trip or slip, but your adrenaline's running. You scrape your arm. You don't even, you're bleeding. You don't even realize till afterwards because your adrenaline's flowing. The urgency of the moment takes the priority. They make haste to her walls and the defense is prepared. In other words, the enemy was where perhaps a mantelet was set up, which was a portable roof pushed up against the city wall to protect uh, sappers um, working on the uh, battering rams at the bottom that the men up on the wall are not hurling down oil or stones or whatever. So it would be a battering ram that's probably protecting them, trying to batter the gates. And so they're called up to the wall. Or maybe it was something else as maybe that wall began to be breached and coming over. We don't know. But he's calling for their help in the frantic moment, the panic. In verse 6, the prophetic destruction of the city is given. The gates of the rivers are open now. This is actually what took place. God is describing it as it's going to happen. Prophecy is God declaring something before it happens, so when it happens, you know it's God who declared it. The river Koser has sluices and gates for Nineveh's moats. An irrigating system 
They were used to flood the city. The enemy came in, opened them right up. Water started gushing in. Remember, this was flood season, all the rains. The river Tigris also, that usually was lower, about 30 feet from the, the wall's foundation, rose up. And it washed away about a couple of miles or so of, of the wall along there. Exactly as God declared it would happen. And so, it undermined the wall. So now the impregnable city had been breached. Warriors were within. Panic, fear. Women, children. And the palace is dissolved, it says in verse 6. The palace could include the temple of their gods, and most likely. God uses nature at his will, and when he wills, for his own purposes. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. He controls the winds, the storms, the snow, everything. He does as he wills. And sometimes God does bring judgment through natural means be it through floods, be it through earthquakes, or whatever it may be. I am not telling you or saying that every flood and every earthquake is a judgment of God. There are natural things that happen in a fallen world, and there are some of them. But at times, we have in Scripture where God will use things like that. We just don't know which ones, so we have to be careful. Now, in verse 7, their prophetic defeat of the city is given. God had declared it so. Listen to the words. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. The Assyrians would never see their city and homes again. The Assyrians would be led to captivity as they had led so many away. And they were brutal, as we've seen often, what they would do to people. Notice, her maidservants shall lead her with her voice of doves, with the voice of doves beating their breasts, and other the women mourning, lamenting, in the judgment that had befallen them. Now, they were very aware of the prophecy of Nahum. Through the mind of some of those Assyrians, I'm sure they said, you know, I remember my grandfather telling me about that prophet. We should have listened. Others, in view of the destruction, even in spite of it, ah, that's garbage. It didn't matter. It took place exactly as God said. So the opinions of men, the responses of men, do not alter the prophetic warnings of God. They come to pass. Again, the lamenting, of the women here. 
horrible situation, even as bad as they were. The women always, men are usually killed and maimed, and women are violated and used in harems or for prostitution or whatever it is. That's why I don't understand the mentality of our commander and thief sending women into war zones. Who in their right mind would send women into war zones or have them anywhere near that? Knowing the savagery of men at war. We have really sunk low in our nation to do such a thing or to jeopardize women of, in that manner. Afflicting themselves for their humiliation and the condition of being humbled as they beat their breasts. The Jew would tear his clothes, throw dirt up in the air. The thing that I feared the most has come upon me. As long as they were on the giving end, it was fun. They gained the wealth. They struck fear in others, but now it's upon them. The shoe's on the other foot. In verse 8, down to 13, the past glory of Nineveh now, in contrast to her future desolation. In verse 8, the people of Nineveh benefited from her rivers and now they became collateral damage. Verse 8 says, Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they, f they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. So though Nineveh of old was like a pool of waters, in other words, the Tigris and the Kosher were her life source having access for crops, irrigation, drinking. In the past, cities were always built by two things, water and roads. To guard your city and to supply your city. No one built cities out in the desert, except for stupid monks. Common sense says I need to travel and I need water. Simple. The same rivers now that used to be their protection. Rivers on two sides, the high mountains behind them. Great fortification. But now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry. The cry for warriors. To not flee was sounded out. To hold their ground. These are not wimpy men. These men were salty warriors. They were barbaric. And now, in panic of their obvious defeat, they did not obey, but they just continue fleeing. This is the actual battle that's going on that God is describing that would take place. In verse 9, the wealth of the city of Nineveh 
is given over to the enemy by God. Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable price. So God commanded and gave permission to take the spoils of war. Silver, take it. Gold, take it. Nineveh was said to be the Fort Knox of the mid-7th century B.C., Mesopotamia. Wealthy beyond its means. The amount of wealth was immense. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable price. You see, the, 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 the money we have, this paper money, look at it. It says this is a federal note. There was a time when they were silver certificates and my dollar was based upon the gold in Fort Knox. Now our dollars aren't even worth the paper they're printed on. There's nothing to back it up. We've got a $21 trillion deficit that we can't even pay the interest on because our politicians and our leaders have robbed us and bankrupt us. And they continue to give away your hard-earned cash to lazy and entitled people. Wow. Nothing new under the sun. Study history. The average lifespan of a nation is 200 years. We celebrate our 200 year in 1976. We're over the 200 year mark. The amount of wealth is immense. The Assyrians in their sacking of cities made lists of their booty or spoil. Let me give you some of this. The Babylonian Chronicles describe the spoils taken from Nineveh by the Babylonians and the Medes in these terms. Great quantities of spoil from the city beyond counting, they carried off. Wow. One of the excavators of Nineveh has um, commented that very little gold and uh, silver had been found in the ruins of the city. The Medes and Babylonians cleaned house after they conquered the city, just as Nahum predicted. Diodorus, a Greek historian from Sicily, writing the first century B.C., describes the final hours of the king of Nineveh, uh, Sardanapalus, in his words, quote, in order that he might not fall into the hands of the enemy, he built an enormous pyre in his palace, heaped upon it all his gold and silver as well as every article of royal wardrobe, and then he consigned his concubines and eunuchs and himself and his palace to the flames. Desperate people do desperate things. You see, the Assyrians knew how bad they had been to their captors. And they knew it wasn't going to go well with them. And so, the king committed mass suicide, just like many of the cities used to do when they heard and they saw the Assyrians coming to their cities. Amazing. Verse 10, the feeble and suffering of the people in the city here 
is given. He says, she is empty, desolate, and waste. The hearts melt and the knees shake, much pain in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. The threefold description, empty, desolate, and waste, refers to the empty city, the void city, and the devastated city. It magnifies its ruin. The implication is due to the incredible amount of casualties in the battle. Empty of people. Void of defense. Devastated the running. Wow. Their hearts melt. Their knees shake. These were fierce words once again. They see themselves helpless. They're struck with fear. Causing their knees to shake together. Even as Belshazzar in Daniel 5, 6 when he saw the writing on the wall in the hand, and he says, Meeny, meeny, tekel you farsin. And Daniel came to interpret it. And he says, You've been weighed, and tonight you've been found wanting. And before this night is over, you're going to be a dead man. It says, His knees and his hips, his joints hit one against another, and he sobered up quickly. God. When men have been confronted by God and they see their end, even if they reject God, they're human like anybody else. People always say, well, I don't nothing. I'm not afraid of anything. They're liars. Every man, every woman is afraid when they see their life in danger, when they're outnumbered, when they're overpowered. It's only human. Much pain, it says, in every side. Terror, anguish. And all their faces are drained of color. The realization of their defeat made them realize their doom here. All the blood of their faces drained away in the fearful reality. Maybe you've seen something happen that's just or tragic accident, just horrible, and you see a person's face and they're just in shock. They're white because your capillaries, your veins, your arteries, the main tributaries just restrict and block off the blood. And it sends it down to your gut and your adrenaline so you can move. Same thing happens, you get older and you're eating and then your brain has to make a decision. Do I send it downstairs so I can digest the food or do I send it upstairs so I can take a nap? Because your plumbing is a little weaker. You can't meet both needs, right? <laughs> so you start rousing off, you make the wrong choice. Your body is an incredible instrument that God has given to you. But it can't not function forever. <laughs> Here the um, fearful reality, white-faced. In verse 11 and 12, the city of Nineveh once was a lion, but now 
the prey, so the metaphor now of lions in, in Babylon as well as um, um, Assyria um, saw themselves as lions, their image of lions, because the lion is the king of the jungle, right? And they had it all over their cities and that. Verse 11 and 12, he says, Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lions walked and the lioness and lions' cubs, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for the cubs, killed for their lions, filled the caves with prey and the dens with flesh. This is mockery. This is irony. Where's all the bad dudes? Where are you at? Wow. The prophet in irony and mockery asked the rhetorical question, where is the dwelling of the lions, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lions walked? Past tense. The lion is in lion's cubs and no one made them afraid. Everything's flipped around. The only answer is they no longer exist. God has destroyed them. According to Asher Banapel, the annals of him, at the beginning of his reign, two deities, Adad and Ea, blessed the land of Assyria with plenty of rain. The rain caused the, fort, the forests to thrive and the reeds and the marshes to flourish. This blessing resulted in a population explosion among the lions. They exerted their influence in the hills and on the plains by attacking herds, cattle, flocks, and sheep, as well as people. Many were killed, we are told. Ashurbanipal II, following in his footsteps of his predecessors, took charge of the lion hunts in order to control the lions, the population. So we see the biblical account and the reference to the lions that were so closely related with the culture of the day. And so we see historical annals and cylinders confirm the biblical record. Ashurbanipal also engaged in lion hunting as a sport. Apparently, lions were captured alive and put in cages in the king's garden in Nineveh and used for uh, stage lion hunts, we're told. One relief that was found in the um, Ashurbanipal's palaces in Nineveh, apparently from the second floor, had three panels depicting a lion hunt. One, the top panel, a lion is released from the cage and Ashurbanipal is shooting him with his arrow. And the central panel is interesting because it shows the bravery of the king. On the right side of the panel, soldiers are um, distracting the lion. On the left side, Ashurbanipal sneaks up and grabs the lion by the tail as he rears his hind legs. The inscription above says, quote, I, Ashurbanipal, king of the universe, King of Assyria, in my lordly, lord, lordly sport, I seized the lion in the plain by the tail, and at the command of Urta, Nergal, the gods, 
my allies, I smash his skull with the club of my hand. This article was first published in the fall of 203 issue in the Bible and spade. So once again, we see the affirmation of biblical history in the Bible. Nahum describes the wealth and abundance of Nineveh. The lions tore in pieces enough for her cubs. Kill for his lioness. Fill his case with prey and his dens with flesh. Very poetic, the language, the metaphor. The application is understood. He sees Nineveh as a lion's den that has been destroyed and the lions are gone. The prey is the booty, the plunder that the Assyrians have taken from all their conquered cities of recent times. It's all gone. Now, the Medes, the Babylonians, and the Scythians have it. And that's just the way it is. <laughs> Nations get to hold it for a little while until the next one comes and conquers them. Verse 13. He says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. There's the summary statement of God's revelation of the battle. God is their true enemy. This reminds us of the Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm against you, O God. I will put my hooks in your jaws and draw you near towards Israel, and I will destroy your armies. That is the next war that will take place against Israel when the nations of the world will round up together to fight against Israel, and God will destroy. It will be Russia and her confederacy of Islamic nations. They are numbered and named for you there in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The battle is described much like we have the battle here and in Revelation 19. God is the captain of the armies of heaven. Notice that. Fighting and defeating Nineveh. I am against you, says the Lord Yahweh, the captain of the armies of heaven. God was the one defeating and destroying her warriors. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. You see, the book of Nahum sets forth an ironic reversal of the Assyrian usage of the lion motif. The extended lion metaphor in Nahum here, verse 11 to 13, includes the two major varieties of the neo-Assyrian lion motif, the depiction of Assyrian king and his warriors and mighty lions and the royal lion hunt theme. 
while the Assyrians kept these two motifs separate. Nahum dovetails the two, but in doing so, he also reverses the original significance. While the Assyrian warriors loved to depict themselves as my mighty lions hunting their prey, Nahum pictures them as lions that would be hunted down. The Assyrian king also boasted that they were mighty hunters in, of, um, in uh, royal lion hunts, but Nahum pictures them as the lion being hunted and being captured and killed. So the reversal comes very, very natural. God's word, perfect, accurate. Even you may not, even though you may not understand a prophecy like many of the prophets of old did not, they didn't say, well, this isn't God's word. They just knew it was for another generation. But they knew it was God's word and it would come to pass. When you look at the scriptures and you look at the last times and you know there's a lot of people talking about revival and this whole almost artificial kind of um, cheer, spiritual cheerleading of the latter rain and from the Toronto blessing, I call it Tonto blessing, and Bethel Church and different people like that. Show me in Scripture where we're going to have a revival before the Lord comes. You won't find it. The great revival will come during the tribulation and great tribulation. Multitudes will be saved, but it will cost them their lives. And so this whole thing they're trying to make happen artificially. You have the Azusa revival that are trying to be replicated with Lou Engel and Greg Laurie and others. Really? You better judge the content of the teaching, the source of things. The Bible is a plumb line, ladies and gentlemen. I am not. If you tell me God says something, you better show it to me in context. When they told Peter and the apostles, these men are drunk. He says, these men are not drunk. As you suppose. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, your young men shall see vision, your old men shall dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, so on and so forth. And as he declared that prophecy of Joel, chapter 2, he went on and continued into the outpouring during the great tribulation. But he didn't make a distinction between it. The stars would fall. Moon be blood red. He didn't make a distinction. He went from the pouring out of Pentecost all the way to the great tribulation. Simple. So you show me in context, you will not be able to. Am I saying that God is not going to be saved? Yes, he's saving. He's saving all the time. But it's not the artificial movement that is going on by the quote-unquote Christian community. And I hold the Christian community in quotations. I judge you as a Christian by the scriptures. 
not by your words or what you say or what you do, but by the Scriptures. If you are teaching and saying something that's contrary to Scripture, guess what? You are wrong, not the Scriptures. And so we're trying to motivate people through their emotions, their feelings, rather than by God's revelation, objective truth. The church has moved into subjective reasoning and interpretation, doing violence to the Scriptures, leading people astray. Read First Timothy, Second Timothy, Second Peter. False teachers, false prophets. They will have great followings within the church. Men who were once right on, scriptural in context, will be led astray. If you're following people that are teaching heresy and you're comfortable in that, you're part of the problem. You've been deceived. And if you don't confront them, then you're part of the problem also. It's the day we're living in. It's a day for no wimps. You make a stand for Jesus one way or the other. Jesus went to the cross for you. The least you can do is make a stand for his word. The very least we can do, ladies and gentlemen. And so may God make us um, courageous soldiers of the cross, not arrogant people. But you make a stand for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace, your goodness. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for tonight, and we thank you for the people you brought. And Lord, we pray for wisdom, for the baptism of your spirit, to preach and to live under your power, to boldly share your word and not fear man, but to fear you, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You might be over the internet. If you believe Jesus Christ is God who became man, who died on the cross for your sins and made that price for your sin and rose from the dead, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and your repentance, then you can call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. When you hear what the word of God says, what he did for you, and if you believe that, that's biblical faith. It has nothing to do with your feelings, your emotion. You believe what God has said he did for you in order that you might become a son or a daughter of God. And you put your whole trust in what he did. Not in what you can do or who you are, but what you can be if you trust him. It's called repentance, being born again. If you want to be born again, this is your prayer to the Lord. He's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.